Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman, and today this is the first episode in what I'm really hoping is going to be an ongoing series of extra episodes in which we give Brandon the day off and I talk about a story with a guest host. And today's guest host is Nathan Carson, writer and musician. Nathan has done a super awesome comic book adaptation of the Algernon Blackwood story, The Willows, with illustrator Sam Ford that I highly recommend to people. And he's also published this really fun, also fairly trippy, but also nostalgia-laden short weird fiction novel called Star Creek that I also highly recommend to people. So, Nathan, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Howdy. Thanks for having me. So, all right. So the, the deal is going to be this. We're going to do the format a little bit differently than our, our regular episodes with Brandon. So Nathan has picked out a story that he wants to talk about. And the story is Oil of Dog by Ambrose Bierce. This is a story from around 1890. At the end of the show, we're going to have a reading of the story by Nathan himself, actually. But I'm going to kick us off here with a very brief synopsis. And then, uh, Nathan, I think at that point, we'll actually just talk about what's wrong with you, because this is an unsettling <laughs> story. And I, uh, I have questions about why you picked this one. But uh, let's get through the synopsis here first. So Oil of Dog is a first person story. It is an adult reminiscing about his boyhood. It is... It's the 19th century, somewhere in the northern part of the United States. It's it's probably Ohio, where Bierce himself grew up, but that probably also doesn't really matter all that much. But what does matter is that his parents are business owners, but the businesses that they own are unusual, is maybe how we'll put it. His father kills dogs and boils their fat into oil. It's the, the oil of dog that is the uh, the title of the story. And he sells that oil, that oil of dog, to the local doctors who prescribe it to patients for its medicinal properties that we we never really quite learn what those are. It's not clear what actually that is doing for people's health, but apparently something quite good. And his mother, oh, what his mother does is, well, it feels to me even worse, though I guess we might talk about whether one of these is actually worse than the other, but his mother provides uh, the very useful service of killing unwanted babies. All you have to do is leave your baby at her door and she will take care of it for you uh, for a fee though and uh so that is the setup that's the weirdness of this of this story but the plot the 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 narration here is about how the narrator a a boy uh he discards the corpse of one of the babies in his to his, his father's cauldron where he boils the dogs and that baby makes the most perfect oil that his father has ever seen and so At this point now, the boy's parents combine their efforts. They begin making oil of human and selling that oil for huge profits. Uh, And in fact, they have taken to abducting people in order to turn them into oil. They've taken all the neighbors already, maybe some other people in the town. And when the local government intervenes and tells them to stop... Mom and dad each secretly decide that they want to make one more batch so that they can make one more really big sale. This is motivated by greed. But in order to do that, they're going to need to kill their spouse. And so in the house, in the dark of night, at the same exact moment, they both try to kill each other with the result that they both end up in the vat. And the narrator who watches this happen, uh, the narrator is now orphaned and so moves to another town and grows up. Uh, And that is the end of the story. And it is a very dark, very cynical story. And so, yeah, Nathan, the question I really just want to start with is simply why you picked this story. I think I 
wanted to pick a story that has stuck with me over the decades. I didn't want to choose something that I had just discovered last week and was excited about in the moment. This is something that I probably read either, I guess, shortly out of high school. And it's just really cracked me up. And I love his writing. So, you know, Beerst is kind of a missing link in between Edgar Allan Poe and Algernon Blackwood and H.P. Lovecraft. He is an, an American author who wrote, he really generally wrote three kinds of stories. He wrote horror stories, war stories based on his experience in the Civil War, and what are called tall tales. And this falls into that third category. And I think that in a way, looking at this story now and thinking about it, in a sense, it's a proto-bizarro genre story. Tall tales in general, the fact that they're based on extreme exaggeration told in a very deadpan, matter-of-fact way, I think that really appeals to me, whether it's Mark Lehner or David Sedaris or Ambrose Bierce. Yeah, I really like your uh, treatment of this as as a tall tale because the voice and the tone of this story are, are, I think, what really jumped out to me the most because I was thinking that this this reads like magical realism in the sense that these these crazy jobs about killing dogs and babies and uh, you know turning them into oil or or you know just killing babies to get rid of them, which are these horrific, grotesque, and cruel things that we certainly would not feel good about our neighbors doing right but they're they're presented in this story as if it's 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 fine people know they're doing this they don't really like that they're doing it but it it feels more like neighbors don't like it in the way that they might not like to live next to you know like the garbage dump or something like that like it's bad for the property value or something like that and it just seems like it's perfectly normal though otherwise for these jobs to exist or for these types of activities to be going on which is a kind of magical realism move to take something that's totally weird and makes no sense uh, and just act as if it's perfectly, not just plausible, but perfectly normal. But I had not been thinking about this in terms of the tall tale, which I guess does make that same kind of move. So I wonder actually, what what's the difference then between a tall tale and magical realism, do you think? Uh, that's a good question. I think that it probably has more to do with the era in which it was written or the culture in which it was written. But, you know, some some scholar of either form might refute that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, someone has uh, someone has definitely thought this through uh, much better than, uh, than 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 I have for sure. But I do love really the voice and the tone of this story. And it certainly points to the fact that, you know, this is a, a story that is, is you know, biting. Right. It's not quite a satire, but it certainly is is a social commentary of some sort, and it has a real bite to it. And I want to dig in on what that is. But I think before we do that, I'd actually like to just know a little bit more about your experience with Ambrose Bierce, because I, I really liked the way that you pitched him as a kind of missing link, because I think that really sits with my experience of Ambrose Bierce, which is that I never read him in school. I didn't even know who he was until I was you know, an, an adult, and not, you know, not even recently uh, an, an adult, uh, but had been an adult for quite a while. And he seems so extremely important uh, in terms of uh, the wide readership that he had, but then also the experiences that he had as uh, being a, a soldier for the entire duration of the Civil War, uh, being wounded in in the Civil War, uh, working as a journalist, uh, going out west. I kind of did everything that there was possibly to do in America in the second half of the 19th century. And yet I had zero experience of him in school. Did Did you? Well, I was self-educating myself even in high school, and I think that my 
in uh, my discovery of Bierce most likely was from Lovecraft's supernatural horror mm-hmm. and literature. So I believe the damned thing would have been the story title that came up over and over in my readings about weird fiction. So probably that would have been the first story that I read from him. And at the time I was exploring everyone kind of in the Lovecraft circle and his influences. I also noticed, I recall that Bierce has a, a story that has, it's called An Inhabitant of Carcosa. And this is before Robert Chambers was using Carcosa and the King in Yellow um, or, or fairly contemporaneous. So I'm not sure if that city has a mythological origin that predates either, or if that's Bierce's invention, that's something that I meant to look up, but didn't. Uh, yeah, it is. It is Bierce's invention, and uh, which we and so certainly we're going to do that at some point. We actually just this past weekend recorded the the fourth story in that Chambers story cycle, and I think when we're done with all of those, we'll go back and uh, read. I, I guess what we'll treat as kind of the prequel, which I guess is what most people do with the with the Bierce story. But that was really how I came to know who Bierce was as well. Even though certainly, like you in high school, I had read Lovecraft's essay. Uh, I, I got I, did, I never made it past his contemporaries. I, I never went back into the nineteenth century. Uh, uh, and uh, you know, I didn't. That was not the the moment in which I read Algernon Blackwood and and so on. I, I got sort of stuck in weird tales, which is not a bad place to be stuck, I suppose. Right? No, of course. I mean, they're all very worthwhile. Although I think a lot of his uh, precedents, like Pierce and Blackwood, are far more literary than some of the pulp authors that oh, yeah. he was uh, corresponding with. But that doesn't mean that they didn't have wonderful ideas of their own. So, you know, I'm certainly not going to take any pot shots at Clark Ashton Smith's prose or anything. So basically I discovered him through Lovecraft and it is ironic how authors who were so much more well-known than Lovecraft, we discover through him now. I think that's always kind of amazing that a guy who was so obscure in his own lifetime is so mega world famous now that people who I mean, Blackwood did not care for Lovecraft's stories, but Blackwood is almost solely remembered because of his influence on Lovecraft. Anyway, uh, Bierce, I was, one of my high school jobs was shelving books at the library. So having been somewhat familiar with Bierce's name through supernatural horror and literature, I of course stumbled upon the Devil's Dictionary while shelving books and then eventually ended up with an old library copy from the 40s. No, I did not steal it from the library. It was a beat up copy that was being discarded. And I think my mother grabbed it for me and brought it home. So I was enjoying that. And just his sense of cynical satirism really appealed to my high school age sense of humor and angst and bitterness. And from there, I picked up a Dover collection called The Sardonic Humor of Ambrose Bierce. And I have no, I'm, I know I did not read it cover to cover, and I have no idea how I stumbled upon Oil of Dog out of all those. So, I mean, the guy wrote 90 stories, and but whether it was the length, the title, or just luck, I read Oil of Dog, and it just absolutely appealed to me right away. And I've read it live to audiences before, and then we recorded that version where I did the narration, and my girlfriend Erin provided the music and Foley sound effects that you'll hear at the end of this episode. And it's just been something wonderful that's stuck with me throughout the decades to the point where I even wrote my own, uh, I don't want to call it a sequel, but somewhat an homage called Oil of Cat that's coming (laughs) out in a Lovecraft Dreamlands tribute 
anthology later this year from the British uh, PS Publishing. What's the the name of that anthology? New Maps of Dreams. I'm not sure that I don't know that there's a release date set yet, but it's it was supposed to be last year, and so I'm hoping it's this year now. Yeah, that's the world that we're living in now. Release dates for yep. for anything that was supposed to come out in 2020 are are, are question marks now. But uh, uh, yeah, we'll make sure we let people know about that when that comes out, and I will be first in line to get that because uh, I'm I love the Dreamland stuff for sure, and uh, an homage to this story. Uh, I, I kind of need that in my life. I think now it's basically if you've read the Cats of Ulthar by Lovecraft. I've always been curious, what was the motivation of the potter and his wife that hated these cats enough to try to kill them? And so I tried to answer that story in my own sort of gonzo manner. So Oil of Cat, it mixes Cats of Ulthar by Lovecraft, Oil of Dog from Bierce, as well as um, Diary of a Hashish Eater from (laughs) Fitzhugh um, Ludlow. Uh, that's awesome. Yeah, Cats of Ulthar is a, a really wonderful story. Not one that we've we've covered yet. So I don't know. Maybe we'll try to link that up and, and get you back on the show to to talk about that. But I want to I want to dig into some of the particulars about this story here about Oil of Dog. And in fact, speaking of motivations, I I, I wonder what you think it is that motivates the parents in this story to do these horrible jobs killing dogs and and babies right these don't strike me as jobs that people are longing to have so why are why do they have these jobs i think the central premise of this story the theme is greed and so both of them have unsavory jobs that apparently pay well and i think that is the basis of of all of this the irony of course being that his mother has a holy influence upon him and his father is a deacon in the church. And he says, alas, that through my fault, these estimable persons have should have come to so bad an end. It's like even he blames himself for their demise and never once questions the fact that they're doing these terrible jobs or that they kill their neighbors or each other. And I just think that's a wonderful irony. Yeah, this is really, I think, where the biting social critique comes in immediately here that that Bierce is taking to task what for him in his life is really the, the nascent system of industrial capitalism. I mean, we are seeing people doing industrial type jobs here and trying to perfect their process. In fact, he describes the the mother's uh, joy at discovering that she can actually not just not only take money for killing the babies on the front end, but then the product that she's left with or the waste that she has left with from that job is now something that she can actually sell to other people for what Beers describes as a double profit. And then, yeah, he paints this real dark portrait of how it is simply their greed that leads to them killing each other. And it is just greed. Like it's, they're not trying to get money so that they can do something specific with that money. They just want the money for money's sake. And uh, I don't know that there's a way to read this story without seeing that as a real critique of the industrial capitalism that is is growing up around around Beers in his own lifetime. Well, and and beyond the additional profitability of combining their industries, it also takes away the element of danger of the law discovering the disposal of the baby carcasses. So, because that's something, I mean, basically, Boffer Bings, the narrator, cheats (laughs) himself out of a job because 
he was constantly taking the remains of these children and casting them into the river and was concerned that the constable would catch him. And so not only does he not have anything to do, but it's a, it's a much more elegant and streamlined and efficient system that they've created, at least until they run out of people to kill. Right. I mean, it is a model of efficiency in this, you know, deeply sarcastic, deeply cynical way. And I, I can't believe that I didn't say Boffer Bing in the synopsis when I had the opportunity to do so. Because yeah, that is an amazing, amazing name. It sounds almost Hobbit-like. And uh, I don't know that Tolkien would have read this story, but it really, really sounds almost Hobbit-like to me. The uh, the religion stuff here as well that you, you brought up about the father being a, a deacon of the church, I think is also really important. Uh, I know that Bierce, I actually don't know what Bierce's politics were, though that would actually be quite easy to ascertain as he wrote editorials uh, for for newspapers in San Francisco. I just don't know. But I do know that he uh, identified as an agnostic and was pretty hostile uh, and pretty, too and pretty cynical of organized religion. And that, that seems to be something that is going on in this story as well, where he's pointing out that the people who are doing these horrible things, essentially murdering babies, uh, murdering dogs, uh, abducting people and murdering them and doing all of that simply for the sake of making money that they don't actually necessarily need for anything are not just churchgoers, but are actively involved in the church. And so there's a real hypocrisy there and that they are involved in the church, but not listening to anything that the church has to say about how to treat people where, you know, like it's pretty explicit about not, not killing people. If only things had changed since 1890. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I haven't read um, much of his journalism, but what I do know about his life is that you know, he was born in a fairly rural circumstances in Ohio, but had the influence of an uncle who was a rabid anti-slavery activist. And so when he was a teenager and joined the military, it was on the Union side, and he fought throughout the Civil War on that side, and then moved west to San Francisco after some map-making expeditions and, and became a, a very successful journalist for a long time, ultimately working for William Randolph Hearst for, I think, like two decades. So, I, you know, with the, the way Democrats and Republicans have flip-flopped a lot of their politics since the 19th century, I don't know exactly where he stood, but I think it's great to imagine him as, you know, and having that influence and, and fighting for the union. One of the things that I found most interesting about Bierce's biography and all of the things that he did, uh, when he was working for Hearst, he was sent from San Francisco to Washington, D.C. Uh, in order to cover uh, a particular piece of legislation that was in Congress that Congress was hoping to pass in, and secret's probably not quite the right word, but pass without a whole lot of publicity about it. And he was sent to cover that story. And the bill was uh, essentially giving the railroad companies uh, a bailout. Uh, they had been given what would be today the equivalent of $4 billion in loans from the government uh, in order to to bring about the transcontinental uh, rail line, which has you know been a, a pretty big deal in connecting the different coasts of the, the United States. And uh, so all of that really you know important to the development of the United States, but the railroad companies were trying to have that loan forgiven. 
such that they wouldn't have to pay it back. And Congress was going to pass that. This was a, a, a moment in history, of course, when bribes didn't have to happen solely as donations to political action committees and the promise of employment for like your cousin, uh, but you, that you could actually just take a check from people directly and just put that in your bank account. And that's what Ambrose Bierce was there doing. He was covering that and shaming those people. Uh, and that bill did not bill did not pass. So he clearly was active in politics and on the side of, hey, greed is wrong and big business interfering in politics and bribery uh, are are not good. And uh, and that's that, that really, you know, we can see that here in this story as well, for sure. And once again, I'm glad all of these things have been fixed in, for our current time. <laughs> right. I mean, like we're literally talking about bailouts, you know, I mean, it just seems like every decade we're talking about bailouts from from loans and so on. So, yeah, not not fixed at all. But I think what I what I always find interesting is really seeing how far back all of those things, all of those things go. It's, I think, very easy to think of these as being modern problems. And maybe it can give all of us a sense of not hope, but but sense of calm that uh, that this has happened before and somehow we're all still here. I almost find it disillusioning how much old fiction I read that's just dealing with the exact same problems that we still have and will and potentially will always have. Even early science fiction just points toward the same issues over and over again and it's it's just appalling to read something from the 19th century or even earlier and wow we how how short a distance we've come Absolutely. You know, as uh, uh, someone who teaches history at, at the university level, one of the th- questions that I will ask my students on you know, the first or second day of class as we're kind of easing into the idea of what we're doing is simply to ask why why we are doing this at all. Why Why do we study history? Why is historian a job that we have in our civilization? And, and one of the answers you always get is, uh, well, if you don't know history, you're going to repeat it. Or, or, you know, they'll say something like to learn lessons from the past. Uh, but then when, when pressed for examples <laughs> of our society or any society learning the actual lessons from the past, you know, it's, we, we can't really come up with examples of that. It's not, uh, not really something that we actually do. And it's, uh, yeah, something that we see, we see popping up in fiction all of the time, and especially speculative fiction like this, which is, you know, no matter the the, the genre of speculative fiction, whether that's science fiction or, or weird fiction or even even fantasy, is holding up a mirror to our society, or the society in which it, it comes from, in you know, one way or another, and uh, and and that's that really seems to be Bierce's main mode of writing, and this is a really great example of it. And I think what it really is a testament to his creative mind that he was able to write something 130 years ago that's still kind of an appalling concept to us. I mean, so many things have become, so many concepts that were just something that might have been controversial 100 years ago that really isn't a big deal now. Um, but the idea of running <laughs> those two businesses Something else that's really interesting in my my rereading of this story this week and kind of looking at some other criticism that people have applied to it, I've always described the mother's business much the way you did in the synopsis, that people leave babies at her doorstep and she disposes of them. But a lot of other people read this as her operating an abortion clinic. And perhaps those are basically the same thing anyway, but that is not a term I had ever considered when reading it. And maybe that's just because I'm a stupid man, but I, I just really hadn't considered it in those terms before, but I, I think that is what it is. 
Yeah, that's a really great observation. I, you know, certainly. I, I'm a, a pre-modern historian. I work on the fall of the Roman Empire. I think, you know, if you ask, you know, college graduate on the street, what was birth control like in ancient Rome? People will vaguely remember something about infant exposure, and so that was what what I saw happening here. But of course, you're you're right to point to that that. Uh, it is filling in some ways the, the same role that uh, abortion is. It's a, it's a way of not having uh, an, an, un, an unwanted child. And I was going to ask you why you think this is happening in this society. Why why are people handing over their babies to be to be killed? What what's motivating that? Do you think? I'm sure that once again, it's probably financially driven. A lot of the time, it could have to do with women out of wedlock that, you know, people had to hide their children or their pregnancies. I read the autobiography of Ruth Gordon, who played Maud in Harold and Maud, uh, (laughs) Rosemary's Baby. And she had gotten pregnant sometime in the 30s and was whisked away to France to basically go through her entire pregnancy and have the child in secret. And that was, you know, 40 years after this story was written. And then in, in China, we're told that a lot of female babies are killed outright because people want male children. You know, I, I'm sure that's maybe exaggerated by U.S. propaganda, but I think it also has happened many times. So I mean, there's all kinds of reasons, and especially when there were so many fewer forms of prophylactic birth controls, that this would have been one way to accomplish that. My sense of this was that this is financially motivated as primarily anyway, right? That it really is about there's there's a baby now that some family doesn't have the means to care for, which is what motivates uh, which is what motivates this phenomenon in the ancient world, really all over the pre-modern world. We know even just from prehistoric archaeology, for example, that prehistoric humans had to engage in this sort of activity because before modernity, before industrial capitalism, even though that seems to be the thing here that Bierce is being critical of, we really were at the whims of local weather patterns, local climate, and things could go very, very wrong. And this was something that we certainly find unconscionable, but that other societies have had to resort to. But clearly, in the writing of this story in the 19th century, it is also unconscionable, right? I mean, Beers is pointing out that this is certainly a very awful thing to do. Everyone in the story knows that this is an awful thing. It is, you know, the disposal of the babies is something that has to be hidden because the whole operation is is, is not on the up and up. It might even, you know, seems to be technically illegal in some way, though, you know, but is lucrative nonetheless. In fact, that's perhaps part of why it is so lucrative. And so it seemed to me that, you know, and I don't know that Bierce is really inventing like an entire fantasy world here, the way that, you know, someone like Gene Wolfe would do, who would have like answers to these questions and maybe charts about, uh, you know, people's incomes and so on, have really thought this through. But to me, this really felt like Bierce was uh, showing us not just the greed of these parents in doing these horrible businesses and even just killing each other out of greed, but showing us a society in which this baby killing business is necessary because so many people in this society are unable to care for a child that they've had and to ask us to wonder why that's the case. I think there may be some psychological engineering here going on too, because, you know, based on generic gender norms of that day, 
dog is man's best friend. And the idea is that women love babies, or at least, you know, feel an emotional connection to a baby. So the idea of a male reader seeing this dog being killed or a female reader seeing this baby being killed, you're hedging your bets to make sure that you have scandalized every reader. Yeah, scandalizes. I think absolutely the right verb for what this story, what this story is doing. And I, you know, I didn't see. I saw that this was published in eighteen ninety. I didn't see where it was published, but but certainly like a, a periodical of some sort, right? It was so the, the Oakland Tribune, <laughs> right? So somebody was reading this like on their lunch break at work. Yeah. I mean, not just somebody, many somebodies. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, hard to envision. That hard to envision reading this story on your lunch break and you know actually finishing your sandwich and going back to work and having a <laughs> having a good day. So. So, you know, yeah, yeah, scandalizing, unsettling, uh, for sure. I mean, and it's it really is a beautiful story, in in that it has this emotional resonance. It has this emotional impact that can't not make you stop and take a look around you and 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 think about all of the the things that Beers is pointing out in this story. I also think so many of our great horror and weird tales from the past have unfortunately lost some of their impact because they've become tropes or have been copied so many times that it's a cliche. Like a young person reading The Outsider by H.P. Lovecraft now, that ending where the narrator looks in the mirror and realizes that he is a monster too, that's just not going to send, that's not going to give a modern reader nightmares. And so the fact that this story still carries a shock appeal to it this much later, I really appreciate I, I think that um, Rod Sterling took so many ideas from these types of stories and turned them into Twilight Zone episodes. And that is, you know, for better or for worse, one of the reasons why so many of those early stories have lost their impact because people have seen them on TV. I don't know if you came across the Twilight Zone episode An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, which is based on Bierce's, one of his most famous stories. And it's the only episode of The Twilight Zone that was not produced in-house by Sterling and his people. It was actually a French short film that won awards at Cannes and at an Academy Award and then was absorbed into the final season of Twilight Zone. And it's considered one of the best short films ever. And it's very cool. Yeah, it's an absolutely fantastic bit of visual storytelling. And in fact, so I, I have read the the short story by Bierce, but I did come to it through the Twilight Zone. In fact, I would say that that, that might actually be how I went and got into Bierce, which I, I did about, oh, I guess about 15 years ago. And I, I was definitely watching uh, a lot of, in fact, I was, was binge watching the Twilight Zone for the first time at that moment as well, which, you know, of course I got to through Star Trek. So, you know, all comes back to the things that we podcast about here on the network. Now, I don't know, Nathan, if this next question is going to you know put you into territory where you might be spoiling something about a story that you've got coming out but I did want to ask you as a writer if there were any writing craft lessons that you take from this story well definitely thinking about the tall tale aspect is something that I'm feeling very inspired by right now because I think in some of my early unpublished writings I was doing that without realizing it and now I am very interested in sort of harnessing this format because I really like the idea of comedy and horror mixed together. I mean, I think Evil Dead 2 is one of the greatest films for that reason. And uh, I was so disappointed when Army of Darkness came to the theater because I'd waited eight years <laughs> for this perfect sequel, The Medieval Dead, 
And then what I got was this sort of Three Stooges, Ray Harryhausen homage. And on its own, Army of Darkness is a very fine film. I'm not saying that it's crap, but it is not. It, it just really tipped the scales into the comedy territory and the horror is missing. And I feel like Evil Dead 2 really strikes a, a really fine balance. Uh, although I feel like a lot of modern viewers kind of laugh at the wrong moments and don't <laughs> give it the gravity that it deserves. Like when he sees himself in the book as the hero from the past, I mean, that is a really profound moment. And I think that it just kind of goes over a lot of people's heads. But anyway, um, I also really like particularly short stories, like short shorts like these. That's always appealed to me. And I think it's really hard to do. But I think that one of the reasons why I have some proclivity for it is because I have also been a journalist for so long. So after writing hundreds of uh, concert previews that have to be 100 words or less, you really start to make each word count. And you get in there with a Dremel tool, and that and that's important to me. And and, and it's one of the reasons I have not finished a novel yet. I, the idea of writing so expansively, I don't know. Bierce calls a novel a padded short story or a <laughs> short story with padding. Uh, that's that's one of his great quotes. And I don't necessarily agree with that. And I and I am working on a novel now, but I do think that the really short form is really fascinating and powerful. And especially with modern attention spans, I think there's going to be a movement. I think there already is movement back towards novellas and short stories. The sad part being that novels still pay a lot better. And that was true in Bierce's day as well. And the guy wrote 4 million words and never wrote a novel. Right. And, and Bierce is one of these guys who had, I, I'm going to describe it as the fortune you know, to be working as a writer when TV was magazines and newspapers. I, I long for that. I long for that day, right? Because the, the, even just the, the era of writing a spec script for a TV show is long gone. So if people like us want to write short stories, I mean, there's you, you really can't make a living doing that the way that Bierce did uh, really at, at all anymore. And I think that's uh, it's an art form that it's, it's not entirely lost, but it's certainly an art form that is much diminished and much minimized because of the yeah, the economics of the the publishing industry, the way it is. And uh, I lament that loss. Yeah, I think in a large part, short stories are written for other short story writers, just as so much great underground music is made for other musicians. <laughs> and the sort of listenership and readership that we need and that people used to rely on has diminished a lot. And, you know, I'm not saying I don't watch amazing high quality streaming television content <laughs> as well, because we're sort of in a golden age of that. But I am also still reading and still listening to music and still seeking out new art all the time. It does seem like most people reach a certain age and they stop seeking out new favorite authors and musicians and et cetera. And I think that's really sad. I just think, I mean, this story is like three pages long. Everyone listening hopefully paused and read it already online. It's in the public domain. This is just a great piece of fiction. I had for many years thought that I had sort of discovered this lost story by chance. But the more research I've done, it does seem like this is one of his more well-regarded tales. So I'm glad that it does get its due. I saw that Pseudopod uh, on their 200th episode did a reading of it. So 
it sounds like it's still making the rounds, which it deserves to do. And Bierce is an, an amazing uh, body of work to investigate. There is one funny typo in Les Klinger's annotated H.P. Lovecraft, where he credits the Wendigo to Ambrose Bierce, meaning oh. <laughs> uh, Algernon Blackwood. And I'm sure it was just a momentary brain fart, and Les Klinger does amazing work. But And both were re- relatively contemporaneous authors with the initials A.B., so I'll give anybody a pass on that. But if you're reading that book, that is not a Bierce tale. Right. They're uh, literally next to each other on my bookshelf. So you, you can yep. see where that mistake would be be easy to make. And, uh, you know, speaking of of readings of this story, we're going to air yours here. And I, I guess about well, when we get to the end of the episode, and I, I guess we're kind of at the end of this episode. So, Nathan, let me just say thank you so much for guest hosting with me today and uh, for having me read this really great story. I loved this. So thanks for coming on the show. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And uh, if you, uh, dear listener, would like to talk about this story with us, hope you'll uh, drop by the forums at claytemplemedia.com or our, our subreddit. And please do be sure to check out Nathan's work, especially the, the Willows adaptation and his book, Star Creek. Uh, you can get both of those wherever you like to get books. And uh, we'll have some links in the show notes as well. And uh, Nathan, where can people find you on the internet? I've got a website that's nathancarson.rocks. The .com and the .net were taken, but I felt like I could live up to the .rocks domain name. <laughs> yeah, I'm envious of that lifestyle, I guess. Well, I'm going to sign us off here, but stay tuned after that for Nathan's reading of Oil of Dog. So uh, next episode, we're going to be back with the first of two parts on Alan Moore's story, Hobbs Hog, which is the first chapter in his book of uh, loosely connected stories, Voice of the Fire. Until then, we greet you and say farewell. Between the life of Edgar Allan Poe and H.P. Lovecraft, and as far as American horror goes, Ambrose Bierce is one of the most crucial figures. He was a satirist, journalist, and author who was famous for his Devil's Dictionary, as well as one of the most anthologized and widely read American short stories from the 19th century and occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge. In his 80s, in 1913, Ambrose Bierce decided to observe the Mexican Revolution firsthand and walked into Mexico and was never seen or heard from again. This is one of my all-time favorite short stories by Ambrose Bierce, or anyone, Oil of Dog. My name is Boffer Bings. I was born of honest parents in one of the humbler walks of life, my father being a manufacturer of dog oil, and my mother having a small studio in the shadow of the village church where she disposed of unwelcome babes. In my boyhood, I was trained to habits of industry, I not only assisted my father in procuring dogs for his vats, but was frequently employed by my mother to carry away the debris of her work in the studio. In performance of this duty, I sometimes had need of all my natural intelligence, for all the law officers of the vicinity were opposed to my mother's business. They were not elected on an opposition ticket, and the matter had never been made a political issue. It just happened so. My father's business of making dog oil was, naturally, less unpopular, though the owners of missing dogs sometimes regarded him with suspicion, which was reflected, to some extent, upon me. My father had, as silent partners, all the physicians of the town, who seldom wrote a prescription which did not contain what they were pleased to designate as Ol' Can. It is really the most valuable medicine ever discovered. 
but most persons are unwilling to make personal sacrifices for the afflicted, and it was evident that many of the fattest dogs in town had been forbidden to play with me, a fact which pained my young sensibilities, and at one time came near driving me to become a pirate. Looking back upon those days, I cannot but regret at times that by indirectly bringing my beloved parents to their death, I was the author of misfortunes profoundly affecting my future. One evening, while passing my father's oil factory with the body of a foundling from my mother's studio, I saw a constable who seemed to be closely watching my movements. Young as I was, I had learned that a constable's actions, of whatever apparent character, are prompted by the most reprehensible motives, and I avoided him by dodging into the oilery by a side door which happened to stand ajar. I locked it at once and was alone with my dead. My father had retired for the night. The only light in the place came from the furnace, which glowed a deep, rich crimson under one of the vats, casting ruddy reflections on the walls. Within the cauldron, the oil still rolled in indolent ebullition, occasionally pushing to the surface a piece of dog. Seating myself to wait for the constable to go away, I held the naked body of the foundling in my lap and tenderly stroked its short silken hair. Ah, how beautiful it was! Even at that early age, I was passionately fond of children and as I looked upon this cherub, I could almost find it in my heart to wish that the small red wound upon its breast, the work of my dear mother, had not been mortal. It had been my custom to throw the babes into the river, which nature had thoughtfully provided for the purpose, but that night I did not dare leave the oilery for fear of the constable. After all, I said to myself, it cannot greatly matter if I put it into this cauldron. My father will never know the bones from those of a puppy, and the few deaths which may result from administering another kind of oil from the incomparable old can are not important in a population which increases so rapidly. In short, I took the first step in crime and brought myself untold sorrow by casting the babe into the cauldron. The next day, somewhat to my surprise, my father, rubbing his hands with satisfaction, informed me and my mother that he had obtained the finest quality of oil that was ever seen, that the physicians to whom he had shown samples had so pronounced it. He added that he had no knowledge as to how the result was obtained. The dogs had been treated in all respects as usual, and were of an ordinary breed. I deemed it my duty to explain, which I did, though palsied would have been my tongue if I could have foreseen the consequences. Bewailing their previous ignorance of the advantages of combining their industries, my parents at once took measures to repair the error. My mother removed her studio to a wing of the factory building, and my duties in connection with the business ceased. I was no longer required to dispose of the bodies of the small superfluous, and there was no need of alluring dogs to their doom, for my father had discarded them altogether, although they still had an honorable place in the name of the oil. So, suddenly thrown into idleness, I might naturally have been expected to become vicious and dissolute, but I did not. The holy influence of my dear mother was ever about me to protect me from the temptations which beset youth, and my father was a deacon in a church. Alas, that through my fault these estimable persons should have come to so bad an end. Finding a double profit in her business, my mother now devoted herself to it with a new assiduity. She removed not only superfluous and unwelcome babes to order, but went out into the highways and byways, gathering in children of a larger growth, and even such adults as she could entice to the oilery. My father, too, enamored of the superior quality of oil produced, pervade for his vats with diligence and zeal. The conversion of their neighbors into dog oil became, in short, 
the one passion of their lives, and absorbing and overwhelming greed took possession of their souls and served them in place of a hope in heaven, by which also they were inspired. So enterprising had they now become that a public meeting was held and resolutions passed severely censuring them. It was intimated by the chairman that any further raids upon the population would be met in a spirit of hostility. My poor parents left the meeting heartbroken, desperate, and I believe not altogether sane. Anyhow, I deemed it prudent not to enter the oilery with them that night, but slept outside in a stable. At about midnight, some mysterious impulse caused me to rise and peer through a window into the furnace room where I knew my father now slept. The fires were burning as brightly as if the following day's harvest had been expected to be abundant. One of the large cauldrons was slowly walloping with a mysterious appearance of self-restraint, as if it bided its time to put forth its full energy. My father was not in bed. He had risen in his nightclothes and was preparing a noose and a strong cord. From the looks which the unfriendly action of the citizens and my absence showed too well the purpose that he had in mind. Speechless and motionless with terror, I could do nothing in prevention or warning. Suddenly the door of my mother's apartment was opened, noiselessly, and the two confronted each other, both apparently surprised. The lady also was in her nightclothes, and she held in her right hand the tool of her trade, a long, narrow-bladed dagger. She too had been unable to deny herself the last profit which the unfriendly action of the citizens and my absence had left her. For one instant they looked into each other's blazing eyes, and then sprang together with indescribable fury. Round and round the room they struggled, the man cursing, the woman shrieking, both fighting like demons, she to strike him with the dagger, he to strangle her with his great bare hands. I know not how long I had the unhappiness to observe this disagreeable instance of domestic infelicity, but at last, after a more than usually vigorous struggle, the combatants suddenly moved apart. My father's breast and my mother's weapon showed evidence of contact. For another instant they glared at each other in the most unamiable way. Then my poor wounded father, feeling the hand of death upon him, leaped forward, unmindful of resistance, grasped my dear mother in his arms, dragged her to the side of the boiling cauldron, collected all his failing energies, and sprang in with her. In a moment both had disappeared, and were adding their oil to that of the committee of citizens who had called the day before with an invitation to the public meeting. Convinced that these unhappy events closed to me every avenue to an honorable career in that town, I removed to the famous city of Atumwe, where these memoirs are written with a heart full of remorse for a heedless act entailing so dismal a commercial disaster. The End Happy Halloween, everyone. I was inspired by this story to write my own, Oil of Cat, which is coming in an anthology titled New Maps of Dream, edited by Cody Goodfellow and Joe Pulver on PS Publishing sometime in the future.